Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. As part of our continuing series on Mendocino County, California, we visit with a well-known local resident, Tara Sufiana, who lives in the hills west of Ukiah in a home that has, when the weather is clear, a view of the Pacific Ocean. Her book, The Sword and the Rose, a Swiss-American dervish in Egypt, is based on five years of her 12-year journey, beginning in 1983, when she left Mendocino County for a European and Mideast excursion. Her book, The Sword and the Rose, describe her experiences living among the dervish people in Egypt. I met with Tara Sufiana in the studios of Radio Curious on July 12, 2010, and began by asking her to tell us about the name and the origin of her book. That was a tattoo on my beloved's chest, which I saw one day. We didn't get a chance to have our clothes off very often, actually. But I saw, and there was a heart with a sword going through the center and a rose coming out of one side. And I wasn't sure what was coming out of the other side when I thought back, but that was the only time I saw it was once. When you say you're beloved, I understand that you and he spent a lot of time together. Mm. He, I wouldn't say tons of time. Uh, he, he revealed uh, the dervish culture and the Egyptian culture that, from my perspective in your book, you kind of wandered into. Yeah, I didn't know this was going to happen. I, I, I didn't. This was a totally unplanned adventure. Kind of like life. Yeah. The best parts usually are unplanned, aren't they? So tell us about it. What did you um, wander into? Well, I, I after I sang on television in Cairo, um, because of connection through that, someone took me to a festival. Um, we walked through this labyrinth of dark streets, and all of a sudden we were at this brightly lit mosque, and there was music and people and food and... And then I, somebody had carried my guitar with with them, and uh, we were at this one hidma, which is a place where a, a sheikh has his group, and each sheikh or leader, spiritual leader, has his own group, either in a building or on the floor, on the ground, or whatever, according to his uh, ability to pay for something or not. And I was taken into this uh, hidma, and they asked me to sing and dance and... Um, First, there was all this music going on, and the Sufis were doing their dervish thing, you know, their practices like, who, Allah, who, Allah, who, Allah, 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 Allah. So they're in these long rows, and they're doing this wild, and I, and I joined them. And then when they heard me sing a song that I had a couple of phrases in Arabic that I'd created just from being uh, into Sufism somewhat here, um, they asked me to come to the next festival, and they started giving me words every time, right, even that night. Well, there were two more nights, and then the second, at that festival, they gave me the words to their songs in Arabic. I did not speak Arabic, but I was able to memorize the 
terms and create music to it. Could you sing um, some of those phrases for us now? Well, it usually starts out uh, as an invocation to invite the um, beings who are out of their body, like uh, like Sid Mohammed or their favorite sheikh or saint. So they they very so- it usually starts out very soft. Uh, it's on my CD, one of these. So we begin like, Ya Nebi, Ya Nebi, El Hidud, El Helewa, Ya Dikum, El Helewa, Ya Sidna, Ya Sidna, Ya Sidna, Ya Nebi, Ya Nebi, Ilinar. Eladu Widna Eastu El Hilewa Yasidna 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 Then yeah it starts Yasidna Nabi Nazara Yasidna Nabi Nazara Saito Babel Nebi, Shekalada Bi, Yami Abedui, who Allah, who Allah. It's, it's, it goes on and on. Of course, when I'm in Egypt, you know, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. It's better on my recording with the, uh, with or, you know, if I brought my guitar, ankle bells. I got the ankle bells going. I got the guitar. So this is just my interpretation. This is not the way they would sing it. They loved it. When you interpret it, how would you translate it to English? Well, the part I was just singing is basically poetry. It's Sufi poetry put to music. So it starts out, it, he, they're talking about somebody is seeing probably in a dream or the way they feel it in their heart. They're seeing Sidna Muhammad the prophet. They're inviting him to come. And they see his cheek as the fire is, uh, the firelight is dancing on his cheek. Um, it's the beloved. The idea is it is reverence. It is it is love in the spiritual universal sense of love. And so Muhammad, for instance, would be the image as Christ might be to Christians and different people have their favorites in different religions um, to focus that love. And to bring that love alive through poetry and music and dancing. And then, you know, they invite not just Sidna Muhammad, but their favorite saints. I mentioned Sayyid al-Bedawi and Tanta, who I definitely felt a connection with. I mean, of course, he's long gone. He was from Morocco. And I was actually initiated into that group uh, without... uh, Many questions, just... Uh, I felt a connection with him, and the other day, believe it or not, I had a connection with Sidi Ali Zainal Abedin. That was a connection here in Ukiah. These are connections, spiritual connections in Egypt with... No, no I happened to be here. Uh, it was a connection. I was amazed. It's like 
psychic. It's all psychic energy. So what I'd like to do, Tara Sufiana, is take the section of your life that you share with us in your book, The Sword and the Rose, and ask you how that fits into other aspects of your life. Before you were a troubadour, a belly dancer, a singer, um, and a flamenco dancer, and a woman who lived in the rural hills of Mendocino County in Northern California. And then you were gone for about 12 years, Mm -hmm. and you came back to your home uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean about 20 miles away. So what I'm curious about is how your 12-year experience and five or so years in Egypt fits into the rest of your vision of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, the sword and the rose symbol to me is more than just that, you know, the, the tattoo. It symbolizes to me, um, well, as I say, I, I discuss that in the book, actually. It can be many things. It could be the pain we need to go through to, to blossom into a rose. It could be... Um, the sword of truth that cuts delusion. You know, you can interpret it different ways, but it's pretty obvious looking at the planet that we we can't just always try to be comfortable and have everything easy to grow. I mean, we need, I don't mean we should be uncomfortable, but there is a lot of suffering out there and we need to take that and transform it into the love and the beauty that is also within us. It is stronger than the material aspect, actually. So the, um, that's part of it. In my life, I've, I've had gone through a lot of difficulties, and people think it's very foolish because it wasn't always necessary. But um, Are other people's difficulties ever necessary? Uh, yes. Yes, Jeff. I mean, I mean, in the situation, I mean, like these people in Haiti, you know, I don't think they exactly brought it upon them for an experience. <laughs> um, well, constant, constant problems, actually. But uh, perhaps they wouldn't need to be anywhere near, there wouldn't need to be anywhere near this much suffering on the planet if we lived in harmony with nature, if we understood the consciousness and the necessity to live in harmony and take care of our environment, there wouldn't be anywhere near this suffering if we were living in not on in just our five senses, but finding that true nature within ourselves and within each other and seeing the divine within each other and with every plant and every species and every being, we would not want to harm anybody. We, that's what hurts me so bad, that people want to harm and fight and jealousy and pr- the greed. The greed really destroys things. And so it makes usually the poor people usually suffer and those who don't have the means to get out of a situation or, you know, might have a lot of compassion for all that poverty in Egypt and, and everywhere. And um, I often joined poverty instead of the wealth. I, I didn't mean to, but because I followed love, I followed the heart. And they, hopefully you can have, you know, the, have that. And with, comf- you know, enough, everybody should have enough, actually. So adding your experience in Egypt, uh, which ended um, in 1980. 1980- 
1989, uh, 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that fit into your life, living as a woman alone in the mountains of Mendocino County? At first, it was very difficult. I was, I was in Switzerland for two years afterwards, and I, I wrote a lot. I mean, I was writing for magazines, but... Um, Well, first, I just started writing, period. And I started writing down these experiences because I felt very lonely. I I was loved by millions of people, and and I felt very connected. And all of a sudden, I was in this one. It was wonderful, kind, wonderful that they would, you know, send me to this hospital and take care of me. And and all the science there would help get my body back together because I was in pretty bad shape when I got there. But... um, and I was so glad. I, I was so grateful. But at the same time, you see, in Western societies, they don't live from the heart as much. I mean, I think we have a lot of that here, and it's blossoming, and it's very—I'm very happy here now. But it's taken a long time, uh, except for some things. Uh, you know, it's like because people are finding that— Life is more than those five dimensions. They are finding that the heart, the the soul, is important. And but you know they're really into science and perfectionism there, and they wanted me to get my trip together and get a job and this and that. And then they, you know, saw you're that, talking about being in Switzerland. Yes, yes. Well, because I was on the graces of the government for a while, and for a little while, and then they saw that these magazines wanted my articles, and so I was able to write and sell articles and and. Uh, work on my book so it's not that the book took me 20 years well it was actually published the first edition in 208 but it it's that um when i well i was busy working there and then when i came home my octagon had sort of sunk into the ground i had to build a new house there's other things i had to do before we get to your new house I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Tara Sufiana, who lives in the hills of Mendocino County in Northern California, a few miles west of Ukiah, the county seat, and the home of Radio Curious. She's the author of The Sword and the Rose, a Swiss-American dervish in Egypt. Tara Sufiana's website is just like her name, www.tarasufiana.com. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Tara, why did you choose the name Tara Sufiana? I know the secret of of your other name. Well, I didn't choose it. Uh, Actually, Tara is my middle name um, that I just never made official. Um, And... I had named my land Tara. Actually, the goddess of wisdom, mercy, and compassion, Tara, uh, uh, you know, is uh, bestowed that name on me through other forms. Other people had, a man had a vision of me when he was up on Machu Picchu as the goddess Tara, the white one at the time. Uh, actually, it was a Zen Buddhist. We were circumambulating Tamapais, with, and I was the only female with these Buddhists. And they, we stopped for a break, and the Zen Buddhist uh, head of he said, uh, "You are, I'm going to call you Tara because you are manifesting the green Tara, and that's who you are to me, 
important. So other people had already started calling me Tara because that's what I'd name my property. And then the letter. And so I just let it happen. It just it just started happening. Sufiana was given to me by, they didn't say, we are giving you the name Sufiana, one of my very favorite sheikhs said uh, they just he and his clan just started calling me Sufiana everybody else was calling me Tahara that's how they say it in Arabic because it means purity and that's the name of one of their favorite saints Tahara Tahara that was closest I can get um and who am I to who am I to refuse such grace so I I wasn't planning to use that name but and I almost did just use my regular other name, but that's sort of who I had evolved into, you see. That's who I am. It's kind of like an evolution. It's not that the other name isn't also me, and I feel very deeply about my Swiss roots, you know. Um, uh, very grateful for them in many ways because strong people and except I'm too perfectionistic and it's very tiring. That's why it takes me almost 20 years to finish my book. It wasn't the writing. I got it down quick. Thank God I got it down right after I got out of there because, it, you know, the memory was clear. But, you know, this book is timeless. I mean, I could take you over there, I think, and we could go right back into this scene. I'm almost 100% sure all these festivals are still taking place in the graveyards of Egypt. I assume that when you say when you got out of there, you mean Egypt and your life in Egypt before you went to uh, Switzerland. When I left Egypt to Switzerland, yeah. So you left because you were ill. Yeah, I had a lot of parasites. I was eating out of the bowls with other people. You know, I thought I was invincible. <laughs> and and then I slipped on that cockroach and broke my right elbow, and I couldn't work then, you know. I couldn't sing with my, I mean, I couldn't play my guitar or dance. What prompted you to um, return to the United States instead of going back to Egypt? Well, this is my home. This is my property. Uh, I love my place. It's just a lot of work for a woman alone. Um, it's been a long, a lot of trials and tribulations. Well, I wouldn't have had to be alone. I just thought I wanted to be alone, I guess. And, well, um, so it's my home, and I almost did go back to Egypt before I came home, but I probably never, I might never have left, you know. And and, and I've, at times I thought, this is, I, I do get stressed out about things up there, I'll tell you. It's okay. off the grid, you know, and I got to make sure I have electricity and water and all that stuff. But I just, uh, I just drilled a new well and got eight gallons a minute. Tara Sufiana, on the cover of your book, it shows you dancing on top of a pyramid. And I know that there's a section in your book where you talk about what that experience is. Could you read that for us, please? Yes, I will um, read the the third time I climbed up. I should preface this by saying that I was going up to dance for the Sound and Light show. Due to a dare from some Israelis, I had already done it once, and this was the 
actually the second time I danced. The first time I slept on top of the pyramid. Okay. The third time I climbed to the top of the pyramid, I was alone. Again, I climbed before sunset with gunshots firing into the air, the police and other people yelling for me to come down. I continued my ascent. In a crevice between boulders on the top of the pyramid, I placed a photo of El Arabi and me as a prayer for reunion with my beloved, whom I had not seen for several months. I sat and meditated until it became dark and the film began. This time I danced in costume for the Son et Lumière show, with narration in French. Flooded with the light of the full moon, I experienced a feeling of oneness with the galaxies and ancient Egypt. When the show was over, the floodlights, which glared from the direction that I must descend, did not go out as they did after the other show. I waited an hour and then another hour, periodically trying to ease my way down without being able to see the stones beneath my feet, my stairway from heaven. The light blinded me. It was getting cool, and I had not brought a wrap or sleeping bag. Toward midnight, cold and thirsty, I said a brief prayer and began descending gingerly, feeling my feet touch one boulder until I felt I could stand on it, and then another. Such patience was necessary. After my feet had found a few such boulders with my weight still on the stone my one foot was on, I stepped down into emptiness. My foot kept searching for solid footing. I had the sensation that I would fall out into space. My foot finally found a tiny ledge. This was the first time I had felt fear on the pyramid. I needed to sit and rest for a few minutes. The ledge was too small to completely relax on, no larger than one buttock. I perched there, practicing long, deep breathing, breathing out fear, breathing in invisible guides. Opening my eyes a few minutes later, I glanced toward the right, away from the direct floodlight, where I could barely see a piece of rock below me. Edging toward the rock with hope that it would be enough of an edge to hold me, I placed one foot on it, slowly letting my weight follow. When it held me, I breathed a sigh of relief. I saw that I could descend, though precariously. As I gingerly groped my way down beneath the glare of the floodlights, it became easier to see. By the time I reached firm ground at the bottom, I felt giddy and light, thanking the guiding spirits that I felt had helped me. There was no one around to scold or congratulate me. The desert, the pyramid, and I were bonded in our shared experience. Although this experience was unrecorded by cameras or accolades, I had done what I set out to do. This freed me from a fantasy that might have bothered me to this day if I had not at least attempted the ascent, and both the initiate and priestess within were appeased. Though not my first experience of temple dancing, I had danced in and around the mosque, temples of the ancient pharaohs, plus temples in other countries. The pyramid involved the most effort and risk. Well, Tara Sufiana, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I have a couple of questions. One is, can you tell us of, and perhaps you just did, a eureka moment or a, a aha moment that you remember and live by? You know, I really thought about that, and I, I think I have quite a few, I, I, but they're not maybe... 
maybe maybe one of the first was when I was flying above my body when I was about 14 and looked down and saw it and had these astral travel experiences when I first looked into the face of my newborn son and I knew I knew him whenever I see the divine spark and other people coming alive and more alive I feel wow and there's just this yeah this was a eureka moment yeah uh being up there yeah there you know just going ahead and doing something and and completing it and feeling the divine energy that is within all and although you have told us that much of your life has been unplanned and somewhat serendipitous if you could what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life well, I want to finish the CD to go with my book, and I want to uh, do an or recording on a CD of my book. Um, and I would like to uh, facilitate more Egyptian dervish dance workshops, which I have done but haven't had a lot of time lately, so that people can get into that experience of connecting with their their uh, true nature. Yeah, I, my main purpose is really to help people connect, especially through dancing. I, I feel that's my what I do for myself and, and others is to help them connect to the divine dancer within the divine, connect with the oneness, the soul, the the source, the source. Because anything you do that you're connected with source is is bliss. And finally, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read? It's called The Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukov. And he was the author of The Dancing Wooly Masters, where he introduced layman to quantum and, and particle physics. But now he's saying that the evolving from, we are evolving from a species that pursues power based upon the perception of the five senses, external power, into a new um, species that pursues authentic power. And this based upon perceptions and values of the spirit. He believes we are mortal souls first, physical beings second. And when we align our personalities with our soul, we become better people. And this is exactly what I'm was feeling. And I and it's, I, you know, I just and he's a scientist too. He's not just some mystic, you know. And he is aware of that. I think as Einstein was, and as we all are when we go within. Tara Sufiana, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And thank you. It's really fun. <laughs> Tara Sufiana is the author of The Sword and the Rose, a Swiss-American dervish in Egypt. The book that she recommends is The Seat of the Soul by Gary Zukov. That's Z-U-K-A-V. This interview was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on July 12, 2010. There are over 380 Radio Curious archive editions on our website at radiocurious.org, where all programs are free to download, copy, share, or rebroadcast as you wish. We'd like you to use the whole program and ask that you give credit to Radio Curious. 
you may also subscribe to our podcast and receive new programs as they are produced. Click the podcast link at radiocurious.org. Let us know if you need a CD. We can make one for you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail may be sent to Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. With this edition of Radio Curious, we say goodbye to Hannah Bird and thank her very much for her year and a half of devoted service and time and skills to Radio Curious. And we're pleased to welcome Christina Onestot as our new assistant producer. You've been listening to Radio Curious. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for joining us.